Hello, Parkview. This is Thomas Hoke, and I want to welcome you to another episode of the Parkview Groups podcast. This episode is for the week of April 3rd through 9th. And of course, I want to wish you a happy Easter coming up here on the 9th. My goal each week here is to inform and guide group members and train group leaders at Parkview to make whole disciples. And this week, we're learning from Acts 26, verses 1 through 32. And in our training segment, I'll be previewing our next sermon series. Now, remember what we're doing here. Community groups make whole disciples by cultivating an environment of relational safety where the spiritual initiative of the group leads to the growth of each member. And we're going to do that this week, too, during this Holy Week as we remember Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. Let me let you know a few things going on at Parkview this week. Well, the obvious thing going on at Parkview this week is Easter services, um, in addition to Good Friday. Uh, Good Friday services are going to be held at 6 p.m. I shouldn't say services. It's just one service at 6 p.m. on Friday evening at Central Campus only. So there would not be a service at East, just at Central. And then the Easter services are happening during our normal times at Central, 9 and 10.30, and the normal time at East at 10.30. We are in need of volunteers for several positions for Easter, and I think maybe even still for Good Friday. So if you go to parkview.org slash next steps, you can uh, go to the serve little tab there. It's very easy, very easy to navigate and find some opportunities to serve and let us know that you're available. That would be a huge help to us. We really want Parkview to be a, a place that's hospitable, particularly when we have lots of guests. So if you're available, um, and I know many of you would be, please reach out and let us know. Secondly, uh, we have an upcoming seminar or workshop, I guess, uh, the Matters of Life and Death Workshop. So this is for Parkview members or their loved ones who are thinking about what's next for them, leaving a legacy, um, considering their sort of final wishes and, and looking toward their coming entrance into the Lord's presence in heaven. And so thinking through that with wisdom and with a heart to leave a legacy of blessing and so forth, and just deal with some practical concerns on that level as well. That is happening on April 15th. That's a Saturday morning, Saturday after Easter, uh, and I believe it's from something like 8 to noon or 9 to noon. The details will be in the episode notes, so take a look at that, and don't be afraid to recommend that to those around you. I know we've had quite a few people register already, and so there's a clear need. I just actually sat down with, uh, with one of our elders, who's also an MD, Scott Eberly, and... Um, Talked with him about some of these issues as it relates to sort of how we care for one another. So you can definitely give that a listen. That'll come out on Wednesday this week and think about joining us for that workshop, Matters of Life and Death, April 15th. Lastly, you may not have realized, but we are coming to the end of the book of Acts. It's been quite a while. It's been a fun journey. Um, maybe you're wondering what is next. Well, I want to pull back the curtain a little bit and show you what that is. So we conclude Acts on April 23rd. And then on April 30th, so the last April, Sunday in April, we are going to begin a four-week series where we will dive into our definition of a whole disciple. Uh, we've sort of been teasing this for quite a while, and it's finally come down the pipe. So this, this concept comes from our mission, our language of the whole church forming whole disciples. Of course, we've got to be on the same page about what that is. 
so that we're building the same thing. We got to—I uh, don't know if you have ever made a puzzle with your family, which can be a fun thing or not—but uh, you've always got to be working off of the same picture on the front of the puzzle box to get to the same result. And often there's a bit of a squabble over <laughs> over who gets to have the best view of that thing. Uh, there will be no squabbling for us because we want everyone to know what we mean when we say we are forming whole disciples. So we will have a wide variety of resources and tools available uh, to help you as you seek to grow in Christ and especially as you help t- uh, others do the same as we take the next step toward Jesus. So keep an eye out for more details coming soon, and uh, we hope this will be just a super mega blessing for you personally and for our church moving forward. So having said that, let's get into this week's passage. As always, the goal for this guide segment is to get a big picture of the passage, navigate any speed bumps that could disrupt discussion, and give a couple places to land in application. Now, I know uh, for many of you, including my group, this is a week where we would not normally meet because many people are doing things with their family and our group meets on Easter Sunday. But for some of you, you will be meeting. So I'm planning to write questions and I hope there's a good discussion that's had by you and I hope that's a good thing, but I'm, I'm mindful that many of you may not be doing so. So Thank you for listening to this, even if, if this isn't a, a week where your group is going to meet. But for uh, we're in chapter 26, basically all of chapter 26, not basically, exactly all of chapter 26. And so we'll work through this. First, I want to mention that we need to kind of back up to get a little context before we start. So looking back to chapter 25, verse 25, uh, we see Festus sharing with Agrippa, King Agrippa. Of course, Festus is the Roman governor of the province where King Agrippa is is in charge of the Jewish people. Um, but the Romans, of course, have conquered them, and, and so he's sort of their servant king. But he's asking him what he should do, and uh, he says, uh, Festus says, I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. My lord there meaning Caesar, not Jesus. He says, therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. So uh, this next scene, and really the whole of chapter 26, is the the procession uh, of this case against Paul before King Agrippa and before, uh, as we learned in verse 23 of the previous chapter, it was Agrippa and Bernice. They came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. So basically, everyone important is here uh, to listen to Paul, to listen to Agrippa, to listen to Festus, and especially to listen uh, to this sharing of Paul's personal testimony, basically. Um, so, Having said that long preamble, let's dive right in. Chapter 26, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, we'll find out Agrippa does listen patiently, but Festus does not. Festus interrupts Paul. Uh, But it's important to note, this is Paul's, it's probably his most thorough defense that we get. It's sort of his longest speech that we have here in this this stage of the book of Acts where he's on trial and so forth. It's also his last trial that we have recorded, and we know he's appealed to Caesar in our last chapter, but we actually never get there in the book of Acts. We don't have his appeal to Caesar uh, recorded. Um, as far as how that interaction works or what verdict is given, so to speak. We do know from church history that Paul ends up being martyred by uh, the emperor Nero in response to the fire that that destroyed some 
almost two-thirds of Rome. Um, Nero saw a convenient scapegoat in the Christians in their marginalized community, blamed them, and brought out, in particular, we know Peter and Paul both to be killed publicly um, in order to basically pr- protect Nero's power. Um, so anyway, moving on. My manner of life, and this now is Paul speaking. I should make that clear. He says, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is well known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. So I'm pausing there, even though it's not quite the end of the paragraph, to to just point out how Paul really sees himself as a faithful Jew uh, who is understanding Jesus to be the logical final step, the logical next step, I guess, in God's salvation that he is working through his people Israel. Not a distraction from it, not a sort of new sect, as they have labeled him, or a sort of aberrant teaching that is, is false, but rather that, that Paul is saying, actually, I am showing you the way that God is actually working, um, is through Jesus, through, and, and notice even in the pronouns and how he attaches himself to the hope of Israel. He says, my own nation in, in Jerusalem, um, according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived. I stand on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. Um, and so this is, it, it's clear that Paul wants to illustrate that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Bible, the fulfillment of God's promises to uh, Israel. Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And so he concludes by saying, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And of course, as we'll see, uh, there are so many examples in the Old Testament of God doing just that. God raises the dead. He raises the widow's son, right? He he raises, you know, many others. It's, it's not a, the thought that God would work supernaturally in the world, having made the world by calling it into being by the word of his power right? Let there be X. Let there be light. Let there be plants. Let there be animals. Let there be, let us make man in our own image. Um, think of in Ezekiel where we see the image of God raising up the valley of dry bones, uh, an army of Israel to, to, to conquer the people, right? I mean, there's just so many examples that Paul is saying, why, why would it be incredible that God would raise the dead? Is that really surprising to us? We believe that God intervenes in this way. Now, he continues, says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in, the, in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Uh, he's establishing, continuing to establish his sort of, his, his, uh, credentials as someone who totally understands their point of view that 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 Jesus is not who he says he was he you notice in verse 9 he even says it that way he says opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth he doesn't say the Lord Jesus or Jesus Christ which is of course his his messianic title um, he just says Jesus of Nazareth because that's how we saw him just some guy from Nazareth 
you know, which of course was seen as his backwards town that the, 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 uh, the Messiah could never come from. And so that's what he's saying. I, I oppose Jesus more than anyone. Then in verse 12, he says, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, notice how he just continues to, to hammer that. This is the extension of what God has been doing all the time. Okay, crying out to me in the, in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Um, now, a goad, you might be wondering, uh, was sort of a prodding stick that was used to motivate pack animals when they were moving cargo and stuff like that. Um, a, basically, it's a pointy stick. And so this, this phrase that's used uh, by Jesus apparently to Saul at that point is, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And so kicking against a goad was when, a, was when an animal was so obtuse, so resistant to motivation, so resistant to direction by its, you know, master that it was willing to endure pain. It would, you know, kick against a sharp object. Um, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And his point was that he was resisting God's divine uh, movement, that that God was directing him away and that, that Paul was was resisting God, which for Paul, who really saw himself at that point as doing exactly what God wanted, must have been a total shock, right? And you can see how that fits perfectly into the story that he's telling about his conversion experience. I thought I was doing exactly what God wanted, just as you, O Jews, think that you are doing exactly what God wanted, but then Jesus was alive, (laughs) okay? And he says, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, if you've been following along with the book of Acts at all, you probably know this is this is the third time that Paul has shared some version of his testimony, or we've learned uh, his testimony. First time would be in Acts nine when we first saw you know Saul encountered by Jesus. He goes, Ananias comes and you know heals him, so to speak, and the Spirit comes upon him and so forth. Paul also tells a story in his own defense in Acts twenty two, and now this is the third and final time that Paul gives his basically his testimony. Um, and now what's interesting is that the details here, this is a much more detailed account than we have had at any other point in the book of Acts. And, um, a skeptic may see this and say, aha, Paul is, you know, embellishing this or fabricating things. You know, the first time we read it, it was just, you know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then I was blind, and now he's added all these details, and it's just to, to try to convince these people or something like that. Um, but, of course, Luke knew, who Luke, the author, knew that there would be three different tellings of this as he was recording these things as they happened and as he gathered things. And he knew that he was going to end up telling Luke's or Paul's story three times. And so it only makes sense that he would draw out the different details from that encounter and use them it, it may have been that um, in Acts 9, he, 
he only only part of that story really served to to advance the narrative at that point. Then in 22, maybe Paul didn't share all these details when he was giving his defense. And now um, it's important for us to have kind of the whole story. So uh, ancient authors felt much more licensed to share whatever details they wanted at whatever time in the story. And uh, it, it makes total sense you know, looking at it from uh, assuming this is possible rather than assuming it's impossible, um, that that Paul or uh, that Luke was simply offering the the details that were always there, but he was simply selecting the ones that fit the story as he was telling it. Um, and like I said, this was as you read other ancient biographies and stories, this is exactly how everyone in that time would have expected story to work. It never would have raised any concerns. Um, you notice too uh, how early. The, the theology of the church is already consolidated um, about the Gentiles, about turning from darkness to light, receiving forgiveness of sins, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. Um, you know, many people look at the New Testament in particular and say, look at this, it's all been fabricated. It was an act of political power that brought these things together. And yet here's Acts, which was one of really the early, you know, documents of the church. And, and it already has basically in skeleton form everything that the gospel that we have preached for the last 2,000 years as a church is all there. Nothing has been, we have not changed this. It's right there. This is why we need a Bible, and this is why our Bible tells us what is true. Um, we can see it right there. There's no fabricating this. This is exactly what the church has been saying for 2,000 years. Um, and it here's Paul probably in sometime in the 50s or early 60s, saying these very things. Um, and so it's not as if we have sort of adapted our gospel for each age. It's been the same all along because it's from the Lord and not from us. So there's a lot to meditate on there from what Paul says, but I'll move on. Verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. Notice, by the way, that's a throwback to Acts 1.8. Um, but that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. Um, by the way, we're going to be in James this summer, another little <laughs> a little hint of where we're going as a church. But um, notice here, often people will say that Paul and James had different ideas about the relationship between faith and works. Uh, are we saved by faith? Or are we saved by works or some combination? And they look at things like in James where he says, you know, I'm not saved by faith, but by my works. And uh, take that as being in direct contradiction to what Paul says. I'm saved by faith alone, um, not by works and by faith alone. And what's clear, especially when you look here, is that Paul saw some role for our works in um, expressing the faith that we have, not in earning our salvation, but in demonstrating that we have believed in Christ. Um, and that's exactly what James says in his book. And so it's important to keep a whole, you know, our breadth of understanding of who Paul is as a theologian, probably sort of our primary theologian of grace and of, of the meaning of, the, of Christ and, and uh, so forth, knowing that he didn't just write letters. He's also here um, saying other things in different pastoral situations where he's addressing Jewish people, um, which is what James was doing. So anyway, just a side note, but anyway. Verse 21, for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. 
And so that that's Paul kind of resting his case. We find out in a moment that he's actually interrupted, and probably this wasn't the end of all he had to say. Uh, but to summarize, and this is what Daryl Bach says as I was studying this, he says, uh, Paul's defense is this. I have a divine calling through Jesus. It was the risen Jesus who gave me this call and made me do it. I was directed from heaven to do it. And therefore, of course, you know, how could I be disobedient is his point. Um, and so verse 24, we get this response. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you out of your mind. This might remind us of a passage like 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul expresses that uh, the gospel is foolishness to the Greeks. Um, and of course, it is. <laughs> it, it seems crazy to Festus. That's what he's saying. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. And so uh, Paul turns, even though he's, you know, basically kind of been insulted by Festus, he responds with kindness. He says, most excellent Festus. But then he turns to Agrippa and he addresses Agrippa. He says, these things haven't been done in a corner. And I know, Agrippa, you know about this stuff, right? And so he kind of puts Festi or puts Agrippa in a public spot of kind of being backed into a corner because Agrippa either has to say, no, 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 I don't know about this stuff, which would expose that he's not done his job as a governor, or as we're about to see, he's going to have to go ahead and say, yes, I agree with you, which would cause another problem. So he says in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. <laughs> and so Paul's saying, my argument is based off of the scriptures, which Agrippa, we're on the same page with that, right? If Agrippa says, no, we're not, then that, the word is going to get back to the Jewish people that Agrippa is not down with the Jewish writings, which is going to be a big problem for him. Um, and so what's, what's he supposed to say? Well, of course, he completely deflects. He does not answer his question, and he does not go along with Paul's line of reasoning at all. He, he acts in self-protection. Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Um, he doesn't answer his question at all. Um, and you can see, you know, when we read the word Christian, we have a positive connotation with that. It was not really a positive connotation in, in the first century when this was made. And so it seems as if Agrippa is somewhere between, somewhere between earnestness and sarcasm here. Um, not, not totally sincere. Would you persuade me to be a Christian? Because he really just doesn't want to answer the question that Paul has asked. You know the, what the prophets say, and therefore, according to Paul, you should be a Christian. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And you can imagine Paul holding up his arms, except for these chains or his legs uh, and saying, except for these chains, probably, probably was a funny moment. And you see what he says, whether short or long, I, pr I would to God, which means I pray, I would pray that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Um, and there's Paul, there's Paul's evangelistic heart on display this is one of his last moments where he is in this position. And he says, whether short or long, uh, meaning whether today or someday from further down the road, I hope you would consider Jesus. And so he's trying to have his maximum impact with the time he has left, uh, which is a good example for us all. Then the King rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. 
And that is where we end. We know the purpose of that trial was in order to get information to be able to pass on to Caesar about why Paul, you know, what should happen to Paul to establish the charges against him, basically. And the answer is, well, nothing. And so the the charge is still going to go before Caesar. And, and apparently, you know, Paul is still going to be tried. We don't know if that ever really happened. But um, what they do know is that Paul did nothing wrong. Uh, which is not surprising to us as readers. But here's a, a big idea for this passage. I think as we see Paul's example of telling his story with courage and conviction, we should do the same. So there you go. Tell your story with courage and conviction. Um, as we go into this Easter week, uh, I, I just have some recommendations for you. First, do you see the need for resurrection? You see the need for resurrection in the Christian life, in the Christian understanding of the world, in, the, in our understanding of the gospel. I remember growing up uh, as a kid and remember coming to, to, to church on Easter morning one day or one, one year. I, was, I don't know how old I was, maybe 10. And I remember thinking, why is Easter so special to us? I mean, the whole point of the, of the gospel is Jesus died for us, which is what I had heard, which is true and totally awesome. Jesus died for me. So why, why do we even have Easter Sunday if, if the whole point has already been accomplished with Good Friday? And I wonder if you could give a good answer to that question. Why, why, who cares? If Jesus died for our sins, why, why does it matter that he was raised from the dead? Why do we celebrate it like we do? Do you see the need for resurrection? Not only at these sort of big picture, you know, big theological truths about why the resurrection matters, but in day-to-day life. Why does it matter for your Christian life? What would be different about your Christian life if Jesus was still dead? Um, now, secondly, second thought to just push your way is, do you, would you have a clear answer for your faith in the way that Paul did? Of course, maybe not as eloquently as him, not as succinctly maybe as him, but do you have a clear answer, a clear defense um, for why you are a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Do you think you could give a good answer to that? If a coworker asked you today, why are you a Christian? What would you say? What would you, how would you answer them? Would it sound anything like Paul's, Paul's response? Would it sound totally different? What would you appeal to, to demonstrate to them uh, why, why to be a Christian? And of course, you know, in, in the spirit of what Paul said, you know, I would have everyone be as I am apart from these chains. Um, something to think about. So uh, we're going to move now to the training segment, and I'm basically going to talk about our next sermon series a little bit, kind of give you guys some more info on that. So if you're a leader, listen up. And if you are just listening to learn more, uh, you're welcome for the journey, but otherwise go ahead and uh, join us next week. Well, like I mentioned, I want to talk to you about our upcoming series, which is on the definition of a whole disciple. Um, So uh, this is going to start on April 30th. So we're about a month away as I'm recording this from, from that series beginning. We're going to finish Acts and then go directly into that series. So it's going to be four weeks long. And if you remember uh, or if you were able to pick up the resources we had from the uh, community group leaders retreat in January, I gave you basically kind of a rough draft preview of what our definition of a whole disciple is and why it matters. But I'll give you just a short, a short reminder now. So uh, when we say that we as a church are longing to be a whole church forming whole disciples, um, for the good of all people, what we 
are obviously in great need of is definition for what we mean when we say whole disciples. We want to be on the same page, make sure we're saying the same thing, make sure for for those of our people who are getting established in faith and just growing, uh, just generally and in need of guidance on how to grow in Christ, maybe they're newer to the faith, etc. This is going to give them some really helpful just kind of uh, steps to walk down. Um, And for those who are trying to make disciples, of course, it's going to be really helpful as we encourage those around us to grow in Christ and to know Christ. So um, here's my brief overview. Uh, And this is basically our basic definition, and this will be our first week of the series will be based on this. A, a, A whole disciple is a forgiven child of God who is taking the next step to learn Jesus, to love Jesus, and to live Jesus. A forgiven child of God who is taking the next step to learn Jesus, love Jesus, and live Jesus. And so that that will be the first week of our series, is just covering that basic definition. Forgiven child of God, taking the next step, learn, love, and live. Um, And what we intend there, I hope you can hear it, is to give a comprehensive view of the Christian life. A forgiven child of God. And that, that will really be the emphasis of that first week. Why why does Christ's forgiveness lead us to growth in Christ? A forgiven child of God. God has brought us into his family. And it's very important for us, if we're going to be a healthy church that rests on the gospel alone, that holds up the gospel as our ultimate hope, that we don't mix up our growth in Christ and our belonging to Christ. God, that is to say, God is not looking at us, waiting to see whether we grow to decide whether to actually love us. (laughs) It goes just the opposite. I remember seeing a video not too long ago that was describing, um, it was talking about peach trees because we're we're interested in getting a peach tree to replace some trees that have died in our yard. And so uh, what I found out was that um, when you have a peach tree, one of the things you need to do in the spring is first look at all of the, the peaches, the little buds of the peaches that pop up on your tree and then you need to find the, basically find the best ones. And then you need to remove like 90% of the little baby peaches that are growing on your tree that don't look like they're really going to be doing well. They might not grow that fast and, or they're just in the wrong spot on your tree and they're going to weigh it down and break it and that kind of thing. And so basically uh, it's going to grow f- because it is shown its ability to grow. It's, it's going to be chosen. It's going to be loved, basically. It's going to be eaten eventually because it is growing. That is not how the Christian life works at all. It's basically the opposite. God loves us. God adopts us. And in response to all that he has done for us, because we have come into his family and received his spirit, then, then we take the next step. And there is an inevitability between those two things, between adoption and uh, sanctification, so to speak. Um and we're going to be in the book of James this summer, and we'll see a clear connection. You know, if you say, I have faith, but you you aren't following Jesus at all, then you're wrong. You don't. Um, and yet it's important for us to distinguish that our, our growth in Christ comes from our adoption into the family of God and not the other way around. Um, so that'll really be the first week of that series. The second week is going to focus on that next little part of the definition, to learn Jesus, love Jesus, live Jesus. And those will be our the final three weeks of the series, learn, love, and live. And you can, uh, this this harkens back to exactly what we talked about last time or, or at, the, at the retreat, learning Jesus having to do with uh, 
our knowledge of God, our knowledge of the Bible and so forth, uh, loving Jesus, having to do with our affections for Christ um, and for his people and living Jesus, having to do with our will, our actual activities. How does our life actually look different from the outside? So that next week, learn Jesus, focusing in, narrowing in down there. Uh, With each of those, learning, loving, and living, we sort of have three little areas of health, and we think of them as upward, inward, and outward. Uh, One of them having to do with our relationship with the Lord, one of them doing with having to do with the internal change that happens in us, and one of them having to do with our outward movement movement toward others. So in the learn Jesus category, and again, I'd call you back to uh, to the uh, the handout that I gave you at the retreat, but I'll, I will send out more as we go. First, we'd see upward that a disciple who is learning Jesus submits to God's word, the Bible. Next, we'd see inwardly that a disciple who is learning Jesus, a whole disciple, embraces true identity in Christ. There's an internal change that happens. And lastly, a whole disciple learns Jesus by growing with God's people. Um, That means joining the community of learners of Christ. Uh, Next, in the category of loving Jesus, there are three things. So upwardly, we'd see a love for Jesus passionately above all else, a growing, developing desire for Christ, Inwardly, we'd see repentance with a humble heart. Uh, A a whole disciple loves Jesus by repenting with a humble heart. Uh, And lastly, a a whole disciple loves Jesus by loving God's people. Remember in Acts 9, Acts 22, and again, here when we learn from Paul, when Jesus confronted Paul, Saul, on the road to Damascus, he said, why are you persecuting me? And of course, he was referring to Paul's persecution of Christians. And so if we are loving Jesus, we must love God's people. Uh, Lastly, living Jesus. And the three sort of aspects to that, upward in pursuing the Spirit's leading prayerfully. Uh, A whole disciple will live out Jesus uh, by pursuing the Spirit's leading prayerfully. They will live Jesus by being stewards of all of life for God's glory, Uh, continually seeking new ways to honor Jesus with all, all things, their their time, their talents, their uh, treasures, so to speak. Um, even when faithfulness brings suffering, we'll see that. And finally, they will live Jesus by inviting others to take the next step toward Jesus. That is by making whole disciples. And so we're going to have a range of resources and tools available to you and to your people as we go through that series. We've already filmed a bunch of videos. We're going to have podcasts that come out each week. The group's podcast is going to look a little bit different during that series. Um, And we hope those discussions become super duper fruitful. It's also going to lead us to uh, share resources that apply to each little slice of this definition um, for people who want to just get established in each uh, aspect of this definition of a disciple and for those who want to help others do the same. So, and that's going to become a little book stall that's, that's at each campus that really lines up with our mission and vision. Basically in the end, we want to make it super duper clear how to grow in Christ and how to help others grow in Christ at Parkview. Uh, I never want anyone to feel like it's not just crystal clear and obvious how to help this church thrive. For you as leaders, or if you're listening and you're you're just learning, um, we want it to be just so simple. Your, your job description, so to speak, to be so crystal clear, so stinking simple about what we need to do, each of us individually to grow, to be a whole church, right? To be formed, in Christ and also to help others do the same um, and just be pulling in the, in the same direction as a team. 
So that's the goal for this series. That's sort of my little rundown I wanted to give you. And you can look forward to that at the end of April, like I said. So uh, having said all that, why don't we close our time with prayer, prayer for our people. Lord Jesus, we pray for our people. We ask that this Holy Week would be just that, a week set aside for you. We pray that you would bring yourself to mind frequently throughout this week. Make your death on our people's behalf, make it real to them again. Make your resurrection a historical fact. Make it real to them again. Help them to see the implications of these deep, profound truths and fill them with joy. Help us as their leaders to point them to Jesus. We pray that you would help us and and help our people to be bold and courageous in inviting others to learn Christ this week. Um, And pray just for sweet reflection on all that it means that you have come, you have died, and you have been raised from the grave. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, folks, we'll check back in with you next week and uh, just looking forward to many stories of God's faithfulness from you.